Hey everybody, it's John Bewin. This is Scene on Radio's first ever rerun, rebroadcast, encore presentation. I've got a big batch of all new episodes under construction and coming soon, stuff we're pretty excited about, all on the theme we promised would be front and center in the second season, Race in the United States. In the meantime, also on that theme, this episode from a little over a year ago. We posted it during the holiday break at the end of 2015, so I had a feeling quite a few people missed it. The truth is I hadn't planned to put this piece out right at that time, between Christmas and New Year's. But then the grand jury in Cleveland decided not to indict the police officers who shot and killed Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old child playing with a toy gun in that city park. So we posted this episode the next day. If you've heard it, listen again if you like, or just tell two friends to listen. If you haven't, well, here it is. Emmett and Trayvon. Dear Mom, how, how is everybody? I'm fine and having a fine time. Ho- hope you and Jean are too. Um, please have my m- m- motorbike fixed for me. P- pay you back. If I get any mail, please put it up for me. Um, everybody here is fine and having a good time. Your son, Bobo. Before Tamir Rice, before Laquan McDonald and Sandra Bland and Freddie Gray, Akai Gurley, Jamar Clark, Jonathan Farrell, and Samuel DuBose, before Walter Scott, Eric Garner, and Michael Brown, there was Trayvon Martin. And long before Trayvon Martin, there was Emmett Till. There are differences among these stories. The recent deaths I've listed of unarmed black people came at the hands of police officers, most of them white. Trayvon Martin's killer in 2012, George Zimmerman, was a volunteer security guard. Emmett Till was murdered back in 1955 by two white men in Money, Mississippi, after it was claimed he whistled at one of the men's wives. But the common theme of these killings seems to be white people finding black people, especially men and boys, threatening and dispensable. It's an American story that goes back centuries with countless chapters. In this episode of Scene on Radio, Mike Wiley and his play about Emmett Till. Mike Wiley lives here in North Carolina. He set out to be an actor, the usual kind, who gets hired to say fictional lines written by other people. Instead, he's carved out a career doing documentary theater. Mike writes plays that tell true stories from African-American history, uh, that is, from American history. And in many of his productions, he hires himself to play all the roles. One of his one-man plays, Dar He, tells the Emmett Till story. In 2014, I went along as Mike performed Dar He in South Florida, not far from where Trayvon Martin lived and died a couple of years earlier. Boys gonna be boys, maybe. Y- y'all want to see a, 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 a picture of my girl? Here or in Mississippi? Mama, mama, we're going to miss the train. Emmett Till, you remember what I told you? 
Right from the top, Mike Wiley makes sure his audience knows the drill. He inhabits one character after another in a quick montage. If you're so cool, why don't you go into the Bryant grocery and take a pass at Pretty Miss Bryant? Mike needs his audience to look at him, a handsome, young-looking African-American man in his 40s, and see more than 20 different characters, young and old, male and female, black and white. Looking for the boy, preacher? The one that done the talking in money. It's a matter of trust. I'm portraying everyone. And so in the opening sequences of the play, I establish that trust. He uses physical cues to signal who he is at the moment. A drag on an imaginary cigarette for one of Emmett's killers. Roy. Brian. And for that man's wife, the feminine tucking of imagined hair behind the ears. Well, that'll be three cents. Allowing the audience to use their own imagination in conjunction with what I'm giving them is that combination is just unbeatable. I've had on several different occasions people come to me and tell me that they saw my skin color change. It's an odd, odd compliment. <laughs> I think it's a compliment. The title of Mike's play, Dar He, comes from the moment when the black sharecropper, Mose Wright, does the unthinkable. In a Jim Crow courtroom, Wright points at the white man who banged on his door in the middle of the night and took away the 14-year-old Emmett Till. Dar he, dar he go right there. Objection! Of course, Mose Wright's courage did not stop the all-white jury from acquitting the men who tortured and shot Emmett and dumped his body in the Tallahatchie River. The murder became a national sensation in 1955 and helped to fuel the civil rights movement. Today, a lot of American kids learn the outlines of the story in school. Mike Wiley brings Emmett's story to three-dimensional life. Quite a few of the words come from, uh, come from documents. A newspaper account, a journal, uh, a diary, um, a biography, um, an interview, um, trial transcripts. Mike also writes imagined dialogue to flesh out scenes that were described only briefly in the public record. And he sprinkles in more traditional documentary elements, photos of Emmett and his mother projected on a screen at the back of the stage, a video clip of the real Mose Wright filmed in 1955. Sunday morning, about 2.30, uh, I heard a voice at the door, and I asked who was it. And they said, this is Mr. Bryant. I want to talk with you and the boy. But at its core, Mike's work is theater. A guy on stage, in the flesh, acting. Bringing to life a mother in Chicago, getting a phone call from a relative down south. Hello? Hello? This is Lizzie. I don't know how to tell you. Bo. Bo what? Lizzie, what about Bo? Some men. Some men came and got him last night. Lizzie was too distraught to explain any more than her first few words. 
missing. Missing in Mississippi. Oh my God. Mike also, and a warning, this is hard to listen to. He also portrays a white man wearing himself out, beating a 14-year-old boy. We're just going to scare him real good. You know, pistol whip from sense into him. We knew we'd done rope the culprit. The way he held himself gave us proof positive. Like a crazy nigger. He wasn't afraid of us. He sat in the rear of that truck whilst we hunted around for the deepest, scariest gulch on the river. When we couldn't find one, we took him over to my place in Glendora where I got a tool shed out back. I'm not sure why he ain't jump out. Maybe it's because he's as crazy as me and Roy. They had filled him so full of that poison, he was hopeless. You bastards, I ain't afraid of you. I'm as good as you are. I've had white women before. My grandmama was a white woman. <laughs> What else were we supposed to do? He was hopeless. I mean, I'm no bully. I never heard a nigga in my life. I like niggas in their place. I know how to work them. I just decided it was time a few folk got put on notice. As long as I live and I can do something about it, niggas gonna stay in their place. Niggas ain't gonna work where I live. Niggas ain't gonna vote where I live, because if they did, they control the government. Niggas ain't gonna go to school with my kids. And when a nigga gets close to mentioning sex with a white woman, he's tired of leaving, because I'm likely to kill him. I mean, me and my folk fought for this country, and we got some rights. And I stood in that shit, and I listened to that boy throw that poison at me. Chicago nigga, I said, I'm tired of them sending your kind down here to stir up trouble. God damn you, I'm going to make an example of you just so everybody can know how me and my folks stand. J.W. knew where they was his old cotton gin fan. So we put the boy back in the truck and went to go get it. When we got there, it was starting to get light and folks were seeing... Well, we were getting worried about folks seeing us steal this cotton gin fan. So we made the boy put it in the truck. Then we went up to this little spot on the river J.W. knew about. Yes, ma'am. <coughs> kind of a statement and a question. Are you t- are you After a performance in front of a racially mixed audience at Broward College in South Florida, Mike took questions from the audience. Your, your performance and the way you looked around and looked at many of us right in the eye, you feel every single character, like, right in oh, your yes. heart. I mean, oh, yes. I, you had me crying. <laughs> Another woman, middle-aged and African-American and sitting in the front row, said she found the play painful to watch because of what happened more recently in Florida. All that, you had a question? Okay, I hope this is not too difficult to ask, but it's the one thing that... Zimmerman Drive, mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin. Mm-hmm. When that became so public, 
I literally was a wailing wall. I was like crying out for the young people not to react. I didn't want death. I didn't want young African-American children to be killed over this anger. It's like face to face. It's like two stories that coincide from 55 to the 20th, to the 20th century now. It was so hardcore for me. It was like, it was like a flashback from history. Now I was able to live it in reality. As an actor, Mike says, he works hard to locate the humanity in all his characters. Even the two men who killed Emmett Till, J.W. Milam and Roy Bryant Jr. Here he is as Bryant, who was shunned by his fellow white Mississippians after admitting to the murder in a magazine interview. I moved a family back over to Indianola, you know, Carolyn's hometown, taking up welding under the Army GI Bill of Rights. They say it takes a long time to learn welding. And then after you learned it, you done ruined your eyes. I could easily portray J.W. and Roy and a number of the other individuals in the play as just straight up bigoted rednecks. But that's not getting to the truth of the matter. That's playing a caricature. I want to play Roy and J.W. so effectively that if there is someone, anyone in the audience that either feels that way in their heart or knows someone like that, they will be able to recognize them on stage. They don't just look at that and go, I don't know anybody like that. They look at the nuances of the characters and go, oh man, that's a little like my uncle. Or that's a little like my granddad. Mike tells me by bringing white characters to life inside his dark skin, he hopes to trigger a similar act of imagination by people in his audience who are not black as they watch him inhabit Emmett Till or his grieving mother. He points to the renowned documentary theater artist Anna DeVere Smith. She calls it becoming the other. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan and student of, of her work. And here's the thing, in my becoming the other, the audience takes the opportunity or is in some cases forced to become the other um, by walking in the shoes of some of the individuals that I portray on stage. And I've had people say that to me. For the first time in my entire life, I understand what it might be like to be African-American. And I think that's, that's the key to it being a play that gives people hope. Still, Mike said that during that performance in Florida, he could see anguish on the face of the black woman in the front row, the one who later made the connection between Emmett and Trayvon. My son didn't need no undertaker or sheriff to identify his dog. Mike was giving the courtroom speech as the prosecuting attorney, a white Mississippian fighting hard to convict Emmett's white killers. If there was one part of his ear, one hairline, any part of Emmett Till's body, then I say to you, Mamie Till was God's given witness to identify him. As he was giving that speech, Mike did something rare for him, which he explained to his audience later in the Q&A. In the middle of his performance, Mike reached through the fourth wall and touched the woman in the first row. <laughs> I just wanted to have a real moment. 
it's all real, but I wanted to have a real moment to assure her that it's, it wasn't all hate. There were some individuals that were trying. A couple years after he gave those performances in Florida, I sat down again with Mike Wiley back here in Durham, North Carolina. In the interim, so much had happened. Ferguson, Baltimore, Black Lives Matter, the Charleston Massacre, and on and on. Not to mention the racially loaded presidential campaign. I asked Mike how he was feeling. Specifically, I asked if he found any reason for longer-term hope. Even just in the idea that it was getting harder and harder to remain in denial about the depth of racism in the country. I go between hope and despair. Sure, Mike said, as the evidence piles up, you know, maybe a person could draw some hope that a critical mass of Americans will eventually find it all undeniable and decide it needs to change. But... But I also see people that manage to find new ways to deny that certain obvious biases exist. You know, people that can take a, a look at that policeman in Texas dragging that little girl by the hair, beating that child, and then being able to simply say, well, maybe she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe she said something. Maybe is always going to be the word that that gives us the despair, right? Maybe that guy in South Carolina running from the policeman with not a gun or a knife or anything on him that got shot in the back, maybe he did something before the camera was rolling. Maybe that kid shouldn't have been playing with a toy gun in broad daylight in the middle of a park. Maybe. So I don't see that that will ever end. There's always going to be a maybe. The website is seenonradio.org. Listen to all our episodes there. You're invited to like our Facebook page and follow me on Twitter at Scene on Radio. The show comes from CDS, the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.